please give us the faith to believe that, that as we're here, that you are pleased. And so we would pray that you would work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight in these moments by your word, um, that at the end of the day, your rejoicing would be, uh, if possible, even greater. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, please. I want to read a while. First 25 verses. Acts in chapter 9, please. That's way too many coughs for August. September, October, November, the cough season isn't even here yet. So, wow, we need to pray. All right, Acts in chapter 9 and verse 1. Hear the word of God. But Saul, still breathing threats and and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but arise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him, in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with his disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, this is probably 
the most famous conversion of anyone in the whole of Scripture, maybe in all of history, for all we know. It's well known. Uh, It's known because of its drama. It's known also because, at least in the Gospel of Luke, how it plays out through the Gospel of Luke uh, and even throughout the Christian faith. Uh, But today I don't necessarily want to concentrate on its role in the book of Acts. That will become apparent. Now its role, the role of Saul of Tarsus being converted, is huge in the book of Acts. After chapter 12, he's the key human uh, uh, actor uh, in this whole letter. I mean, he's the one around which, in terms of uh, we're thinking it from a human perspective, he's the person around which uh, the book of Acts sort of, sort of focuses uh, from chapter 12 or so on. Uh, and so he's very important. Uh, he's important, obviously, in the history of the church. Uh, nearly a fourth or more of the New Testament was written by him. Uh, if you just add up the pages, anyway, uh, you'll find that to be the case. In fact, there are libraries today that have whole sections uh, that deal exclusively with Pauline theology. Uh, There are volumes upon volumes upon volumes written with titles like the outline of Paul's theology or Pauline eschatology and all those kinds of things. You come into my library and you'll find probably hundreds of books uh, with titles such as that uh, because of his role in the whole history of Christian thought. And he is for us under the Holy Spirit, uh, the key interpreter of all that Jesus did and taught. I mean, we read Paul. And so he's significant there. But I'm not going to concentrate on that particularly today, nor on the drama of his conversion. That's well known to us. Clearly, it was a dramatic conversion uh, because of the occasion and because of who he was. I mean, here was a man uh, that, that, that was the Hitler, the Stalin, the Genghis Khan, the Idi Amin. I mean, I don't know what, what name you want to put to that that would make you afraid. Uh, he is the Al Capone of, of, uh, of, 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 of his day. If you were a Christian, he was after you, and you were not safe as long as he was in your city. Jerusalem was his primary place, at least in the early days of the church. He was the very one who would, who would put people in prison, who would drag people out of their homes, who would even approve their own death. He had the authority, authority to do all of that and, and that was who he was. Just notice some of, the, some of the things we read about him. For instance, in Acts chapter 7, the couple of chapters previous, during the stoning of Stephen, verse, verse 58, uh, as Stephen um, uh, was being stoned or to be stoned, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so Saul was there. He saw all that that happened. Not only that, he gave approval to that. When they laid uh, their cloaks at his feet, it meant he was the executioner. He was the one who had the authority to say, yes, you may kill him. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so in verse 1 where it says there arose on that day a great persecution and they were all scattered, they were running from Saul. 
and all of those who were helping him. He was the one that they were afraid of, if you will. Um, And then uh, we read in chapter 9, verse 1, which we just read a moment ago. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and so forth. And so, so what's transpiring here, he's doing his, he did his work in Jerusalem, and he arrested and killed and so forth and so on. Then they scattered, and he wasn't satisfied with just sort of getting them out of Jerusalem. He, he, he went after them. I mean, that was his passion. That was his zeal. He had to stop this thing called the way that was very offensive. What a name. It means that this is the way. These people who follow after Jesus are saying that this is the way and there is no other. And so that being offensive to Saul at that point in his life says we have to put an end to this. This is a religious war. We have to put an end to this. And so he went to the leaders and he says, I want to follow after them. I know that some are going to various places. Some are going to Damascus. And so I want the authority to go into the synagogues there where they're still gathering these followers of Jesus. I want to go there and I want to have the authority to do there what I've done in Jerusalem. I want to put them in prison. Uh, I want to kill them. In fact, it was kind of an extradition order. He was going to bring them back, bring them back to Jerusalem for imprisonment and perhaps even their death. And so that is how he's described by Luke. Paul describes his own life as well. Turn to Acts chapter 22. In verse 3, of himself, Paul says this, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, That would ring to them as something very significant, uh, given the um, status of uh, Gamaliel as a teacher. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were also there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So that was his zeal. And then in chapter 26 of Acts, here's how Paul descri- Saul describes himself in verse 9. Acts 26, verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." So you see the zeal of this person. I mean, he plans out their punishment. He plans out their demise. He plans out their execution. And even he says it was a raging fury within him. And so here you have this person that says anti-Christ, that says anti-Jesus, as anti-followers of Jesus as you can possibly have anywhere through all history, you get the impression that if you were sitting at a lunch counter, he came in and sat down, you started small talk, and you said you were a follower of Jesus, he would grab you by the throat. And he would try to get you to say that Jesus wasn't the Christ. And I don't know what his strategy was. 
I don't know what his, his way of trying to get people to do that, whether at first he was sweet and he would say, you know, if you renounce Christ, you'll be free to go and everything will be hunky-dory and fine. And when you didn't, if he got meaner and nastier and how that took place, I don't know, but my suspicion is it was torturous to get them to blaspheme. We can't think lowly enough of this man, Saul of Tarsus. That's what's so dramatic about all of this. Because here he comes, if you can imagine this, he's going from Jerusalem to Damascus, which is between 150 and 200 miles, depending on, on who you're reading at the time and how they're measuring all of this. But, but, but a long way. And, and that, that is an R200 miles where you get in the car in a few hours. Uh, you're there in the comfort of air conditioning and all of that. But that's, that's a five or six day journey. And so he, he's that zealous to go there, to follow them, to take this week out of his life and take a reasonably uncomfortable trip and to go there so he can, he can zealously persecute these people, bring them back to Jerusalem for imprisonment and perhaps death. And as he's entering into the city to arrest these followers of Jesus, he's arrested himself by the Lord Jesus. A light comes very specifically to him. We learn he's blinded by it. It appears that he hears, well, it doesn't appear, he hears this voice. Uh, he, re, he replies, Lord, Lord, because now he's on his face. And he says, Lord, Lord, who are you? Jesus says, I'm Jesus, and, and I'm the one you're persecuting. So we see the very close connection between Jesus and his people. If you attack his people, it's as if you're attacking him because indeed you are. And so he says, you're persecuting, you're persecuting me. He's blinded by this. His, his companions, those people with him, seem not to understand what it is that he's heard from Jesus. You'll find that in chapter 26. They don't seem to understand. Parenthetically, I wish I knew what happened to those guys, but we don't. Uh, <laughs> we just don't know what happened to those guys. But we do know that Jesus gives Saul instructions to go uh, into the city and to wait and so his companion, since Paul is blind, lead him into the city. And there he is for three days. And he doesn't eat or drink anything at all. Uh, at the same time, God goes to this man in Damascus, in the city of Damascus, named Ananias. And he says to Ananias, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find this man, Saul. And I want you to pray for him. And Ananias, not surprisingly, says... No, why in the world would I want to do that? I've heard about this man and we know why he's here. We know why he's coming here. The word had already gotten out that Saul of Tarsus was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus. And that he was going to do the same thing in Damascus that he had done in Jerusalem. And so Ananias, being a rational human being, is thinking, God, why in the world would I want to go over there? And God says to him, relax, I've called him to be my servant and I want you to go there and pray for him. So Ananias goes to that street called Straight, which would have been a main drag, if you will. That's our way of saying Main Street, Straight Street. Uh, and so he would have gone there, found Saul. He did indeed pray for him. As he did, scales, like scales, fell off his eyes so he could see. He received the Holy Spirit. He was baptized, and then he ate, and so forth. And so things sort of got back to normal. Saul then entered into the synagogues. Must have been an amazing Sights. Could you imagine if Adolf Hitler walked into a synagogue? What might happen? I have a feeling he might be alone. 
after a few seconds as everyone got up and left. But, but Saul comes in, and not only does he simply come in, but he begins to tell them about Jesus in a positive way, not in a blasphemous way, but in a positive way, saying, I believe in him, I know him, I trust him. So the transformation was huge. The drama of his conversion simply can't be matched, I don't, I don't suppose. But it's not so much the drama of that I, I want to think about this morning. I want to think about what his conversion means, that is, what it meant to Saul, how he understood it, so that it will help us understand our own conversion, what that really means. Just two things I want to concentrate on this morning. And I want to take this from this passage. I want to take this from from the way that Paul analyzes Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle, obviously, how he analyzes his conversion uh, in other places in the Scripture, and then how he speaks of what it means to be a Christian. And the first thing I want us to see that I think is indisputable is that Paul's conversion was from God. John Stott, uh, uh, dear and great uh, saint of the church, puts it like this. He says this. He says, If we ask what caused Saul's conversion, only one answer is possible. What stands out from the narrative is that is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. Saul did not decide for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. The evidence for this is indisputable. And so when Stott, or we might say, because we use this expression, would say that it was by God's sovereign grace, we mean first sovereign, that is that it was uncoerced, that God had complete freedom to save Paul or not from Saul's perspective. There was nothing in Saul of Tarsus that would say to God, you must save this man. There wasn't anything in him that commended himself, that coerced God, that moved God's hand in some way outside of God, uh, that said, you must save him. It was sovereign and it was grace. That is to say, Saul of Tarsus did not deserve what happened to him. In fact, it seems clear by any standard of uh, judgment and justice that he deserved death for what he did. He deserved punishment for what he did. And since it was so directly against God as all our sin ultimately is, but in this case, he was against God. This wasn't a man that was for God. It wasn't his zeal for the true and living God that caused him to do this. How can someone have zeal for the true and living God and deny Christ? That would be impossible. And so it wasn't his zeal for the true and living God. It was his zeal for who he thought the true and living God was, was this God he had made up, in a sense, in his own mind. It wasn't that that tipped God's hands. It was utterly God's sovereign grace. He didn't deserve this that he received. And we see that this was, this was God at work. This was God intervening in Saul's life. Isn't it interesting that as far as we know, none of the other people who were with Saul on that road to Damascus got it. None of the others 
understood what Jesus said. They didn't hear it in the same way. It was very specific, very directed at this person, Saul of Tarsus. God did not intervene in the lives of Caiaphas, for instance, the high priest at that time, who was one responsible for turning Jesus over to the Roman authorities. He didn't intervene in Pilate's life like this or any other way, as far as we know. Uh, But he did in this one Saul of Tarsus. And we have to think of that. Very specific to him, God intervened directly in his life. It seems unquestioning to say anything but God wanted him. And so he came after him. And he dramatically revealed himself to Saul in this way. We don't even have any huge... Uh, conversion response of Paul. We don't have any great sense where Paul says, okay, I believe, I believe, I believe. And and I'm sure he said something like that along the way, at least in his public profession to others, but it doesn't need to be said. I mean, it's just, boom. God played through into his life, and there there he was. Um, He was out to destroy the church. He wasn't sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit. He had heard the gospel over and over and over again. He heard it from the lips of Stephen. If you had given Paul a multiple choice test on what Christians believe the gospel is, he would have passed with flying colors. That's what made him so hateful. He knew exactly what they were saying. So it isn't that he didn't have the information. It's that he didn't have the heart to believe it. He wasn't willing to submit to it. He didn't see himself to be a sinner, as they had said. He didn't see Jesus as the Savior, as they had said. He didn't see Jesus as the very Messiah, the one that all the Old Testament speaks about and the one to come. He didn't see any of that, didn't believe any of that, didn't have the heart for any of that. In fact, he had the opposite heart to turn against them. So we can't say in any particular way that Saul merited anything. It was God's sovereign grace. And here's how Saul describes all of this. Turn, if you have a Bible, to Galatians in chapter 1 and verse 11. He writes this about himself. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. That's all we need. Some have said that Saul was chosen by God to be a believer and to go to the Gentiles because he was a man of great intellect and great passion. And that is true in the sense that he was a man of great intellect and a man of great passion. But Paul never appealed to those as the reason why God had saved him. Never. What he said is that God set me apart before I was born. That's this whole sense of grace. It had nothing in a sense to do with him, his goodness or badness. But he said, God had placed his hand upon me, his heart upon me, 
his eyes upon me before I was born. And then he said, he called me by his grace, meaning there's nothing here in me that merited this. It doesn't say anything good about me. It says everything good about God. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me. It was by way of this revelation that it came. In Philippians in chapter 3, in verse 12, Paul puts it this way. He writes, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How did he come to faith? Well, because, because of a work of Christ. He says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. We often use the expression, you know, I made Jesus my Savior, or I made him my Lord. And, and I understand what we're saying when we say that. But the way the apostle puts it is, no, no, no. Jesus made me his. He was the Lord in this situation. He overcame my resistance. He overcame my unbelief. And he made me his. First Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul puts it like this. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged, or if you have an NIV, it says because he counted, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice again how Paul describes himself. He calls himself a blasphemer. Meaning that he denied the deity of Christ. That's blasphemy. That's speaking against God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thus, if someone doesn't believe in the deity of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're blasphemers. All right? You don't have to announce that to everybody as they, you know. But, but that's just true. Right? They don't believe. They're denying God. You can't leave out the Father, the Son, or the Spirit and say, in, an, in, a, in a true sense, you believe in God. You're denying God. People say they believe in God all the time. And yet, we know what they're saying, but we know that they don't believe in God if they're not trusting Christ. It's a denial of God to deny the deity of Jesus. And so Paul said he was a blasphemer. He knows exactly what a blasphemer ought to get because he thought Stephen was a blasphemer and he agreed to the stoning of Stephen. So he knows that blasphemers should be stoned to death. And he was a real blasphemer. He would say, Stephen should have lived. I should have died because I was a blasphemer. And he says, a persecutor of the church, an insolent opponent that is a violent man, contemptuous man uh, that's who he was but notice he says I received mercy because I acted ignorantly 
in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now please don't hear this as if Paul is saying, because I was acting in unbelief and ignorance, God then was able to give me mercy. No. He's saying, don't think that I knew what I was doing or that I believed in God. Everything that's true of me is because of the mercy of God. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. So how else could I explain my present situation other than mercy? And when he says he acted in ignorance, of course, it doesn't mean that he didn't know the gospel. It means he didn't believe the gospel. He didn't think it true. And so he wasn't chosen by God because he was so brilliant. He was ignorant of the truth. That is, he didn't believe it. He didn't believe the truth. So don't ever think it was his brilliance or his great zeal. It's only the mercy of God. It was the mercy of God. Look at me. I was a blasphemer. How else could I be in the position I'm in? Look at me. I was a persecutor of the church. How else other than the mercy of God could I be in the position I'm in? I was insolent. I was violent. I was contemptuous. I hated the church of Jesus Christ. I hated Jesus. How else other than the mercy of God could I be here? So don't think it was because of my brilliance or my zeal. I acted in ignorance. In in fact, what's amazing to me is that God counts me faithful. (laughs) And he has to count me faithful because I'm not inherently faithful. I'm an ignorant unbeliever who's a blasphemer and 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 a persecutor of the church and all of this. And so what's amazing is that he counts me faithful to this work. It's all by his mercy that I receive this. Is it any wonder that Paul would write this in Ephesians in chapter 1? Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, Adopting, uh, he predestined us, adopting through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. People argue about this text, which is quite foolish to do. Because if you knew the one who wrote it, this Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the bondslave of Jesus, you would understand precisely how he understood it. He could explain his conversion no other way. Nor can we. And so the response of him would be to worship. What else? To, to give him thanks. In the first Timothy passage, I give thanks to God. Here he worships. Why? Because of the mercy of God. It was completely undeserved. He didn't seek it. God sought him and he knew it. He wasn't seeking God. God got him. And he knows of no other way to explain it. Thus he refers, the apostle does, often to believers as God's elect, God's chosen ones. How else could any of us enter into this? Who among us deserves it? Who among us has really sought God with a heart that's commendable? No. He says it's God's work in us. And thus our response ought to be to praise him, 
Not only that, the apostle saw himself as the chief among sinners, as he says in the first Timothy passage, the foremost. Not that he simply was, he still says, I am. It's a present tense thing. And he say, I'm still this sinner. And yet God still shows me mercy. And so I worship. So he ends the first Timothy passage in verse 17 by saying, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. At the end of perhaps one of the greatest passages and sections of the scripture on this whole idea about God saving us, the apostle writes this in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. He writes, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. He simply doesn't know how to say it. He just says, I'm flabbergasted by the fact that God has saved me and his is a model for us all. Oh, our salvation conversion may not have been dramatic as his. I trust it wasn't for most of us. For me, I, I simply can't remember not believing in Jesus. No big knock off my horse, light blinded. I've never not eaten for three days over anything. Uh, so, um, but his dramatic, but the same, the same God, the same way in the sense that no matter what, our story is, it's still God. So whether it was gentle, whether it was a Sunday school teacher, whether it was your parents, whether it was a sibling, whether it was a college mate, whether it was a campus ministry worker, whether it was a pastor, whether it was you on your own sitting down thinking, whether it was reading through the scripture, whether it was whatever it was, whether it was a crisis that came into your life and turned you to God, whatever that was, that brought you to Jesus, understand it was the same Jesus in the same source as this conversion of Paul. Just different circumstances, but God. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. Whew. That's it. And thus we give him thanks. Because it wasn't us. So we're thankful to him. And we worship him. You know, I have to be honest with you. This experience uh, resonates with me more than almost any in, in the surprise of my own salvation and my gratefulness for it. I don't know about you, but I've had a couple of occasions in my life when I've been driving down the interstate, the speed limit, I'm sure. And, and I, I go to pass another car. And when I do that, I look in my rearview mirror and I realize I just pulled out in front of an 18-wheeler. And if it wasn't for the depthness of that truck driver, I should be dead. And I think, I had nothing to do with the fact that I'm still breathing. <laughs> that was somebody else's ability, somebody else's choice entirely. And of course, I'm making hand signals to the truck driver to say, I'm sorry, and he's making hand signals to me to say, I forgive you. Uh, but, <laughs> but you see, there's a sense of worship at that moment. I'm so grateful. You know, my life has been spared because of his skill, if you will, and his paying attention and not mine. And that's weak, I know, and silly. 
And but my salvation, my conversion, as I look back, I realize it was his work. I have nothing to commend myself, nothing to say. I have no idea why he doesn't save everybody. That's just not question the answers or one I deal with. But I do know. And thus I worship. And then you see it brings us to a point of humility. A point of humility before God. Because you know that I acted before I knew Christ in ignorance and unbelief. As we all did. He didn't save me because I'm smart. He didn't save me because of my great inherent faith. It was his work in me, his work in you. We know that about each other. We can't put on airs. And thus, you see, he calls Paul to his service. And he tells Paul on the very day, early days of his conversion life that I'm going to call you to follow me and I need to tell you what you're going to suffer. And you understand that Paul didn't say, no, I don't want to suffer. Because Paul knew that he should really suffer and that now his suffering would be for Christ's sake. His suffering would be good suffering. His suffering would be for the salvation of others. His suffering would be for the glory of God. And so he didn't begrudge that suffering. And so he would call himself very openly and honestly and sincerely as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And so when people treated him like a servant, he took it. Have you ever noticed how when we say we're servants of Christ, but then when somebody actually treats us like a servant of Christ, <laughs> we get mad and think they've dishonored us. How dare they say that about us? How dare they do that to us? I mean, you know, look what I did. <laughs> no. The bond slaves of Jesus, that humility brings service. And the fact that we remember this, that we know this, brings assurance. Paul's great line, who can bring a charge against God's elect? If God is for you, who can be against you? Oh, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the one who makes intercession for us. And the point of all of that is that no one can bring a charge against God's elect because Jesus is standing there interceding on our behalf. His very blood, his very scars testifying, no, this one's forgiven, this one's mine. Whatever you say, it's been dealt with, it's been done. And so we have assurance in the midst of this. And not only that, we can then go out and do exactly what Paul was charged to do in Acts in chapter 26. Uh, Paul, receives, or Paul shares more specifically the instructions that he's received from Jesus. Verse 16, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your uh, people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. And here's what he was to do. To open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified in faith in me. He says, he says now go serve me. And the way you serve me is to tell people about me. And you're thinking, well, why should I do that? If they're dead and their trespasses and sins. And he says, no, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to open people's eyes so that they'll know that there's deliverance from Satan to God. So they'll know there's forgiveness of sins. And Paul's very life would be testimony that God could do that. First Timothy passage that we read a minute ago, he writes this about himself, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
Why should you believe that God can save somebody else? Because he saved you. And if he can save you, how can anybody else be outside of his saving power? You say, well, I'm not that bad. You really want to say that? In front of God? Who knows your heart? And so you see, we must always remember that our salvation is from God. In fact, if you read through that great little book called The Pilgrim's Progress, and you get to the second part, where his wife and children are making pilgrimage, there's a great expression, and I don't think it's in the first part, it's only in the second part, I think, where one of the children says uh, to the, the guide, he says, didn't my father have a big battle with Satan here? And, and here's, here's the response, if I've got it. Yes, here's the response. He says, yes, right beyond forgetful green. And then there's this little parenthetical uh, remark about this place called forgetful green. He says that that is the most dangerous place in the whole journey, forgetful green. For if at any time the pilgrims meet with any brunt that is sharp blow, it is when they forget what grace they've received and how unworthy they are of them. We must never forget this. We must never forget that God is the source of our salvation. Because the moment we forget that God is the source of our salvation, we'll cease to be thankful. Because you know what is the basis of thankfulness. We give thanks not when we, when we compare what we have with what we want. Now, frankly, most of us should be pretty thankful just on that count because we're Americans. Most of us have pretty much what we want. In fact, today we have more than we ever thought we'd ever want because none of us ever thought about having an iPod before, right, in the last five years. I mean, that was beyond our, somebody's imagination got it, but not ours. So we, so we should be thankful. It isn't comparing what we have with what we need. On that account, we should be very thankful, but that isn't really the source of all thankfulness. Thankfulness is when we compare what we have with what we deserve to have. And if ever we forget that it is God who saved us, somehow we might think we deserve a little of this. But when we realize that it is God who has saved us, we realize we haven't deserved any of this, but yet he's given it to us. And that's the very fuel of thankfulness. If we ever forget that it's God who saved us, we'll find our worship diminished. In fact, if you ever find your worship cool, shall I say, when you find your worship cool, a good exercise is to walk back through how it is, who it is, why it is he saved you. And then you see, uh, we'll find, if we ever forget this, that our humility uh, turns a bit into pride. We begin to look at ourselves and think, oh, maybe we deserve some of this. And therefore, when people do treat us like servants, we get very angry and upset about that because how can they treat me this way? But when we remember this, we realize it's okay. And when we ever get discouraged and depressed and in despair about those whom we love who do not know Jesus and we think they're utterly without hope, we must remember 
And he saved this one named Saul. And he saved us. And that no one is beyond the saving grace of God. Thus, we must never lose hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that our dear brother Luke uh, records this conversion of Saul so clearly. Thank you that Saul, Paul, reflects upon it in such a clear, honest way. So that those of us who haven't had such a dramatic conversion can realize that you have worked in us as you worked in him. So I pray even now that we'd never forget that. We'd never forget that you are the one who has saved us and not ourselves. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction this morning is, Jesus is Lord. And when you say that, what you're saying is that he is the one who has saved you. He's the one who has power over life and death. And he's the one who has power and authority over you, your heart, and over everyone else. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.